0: it is so important to do applied scholarship. Yes, it may not reach academic medicine, however, there are many practitioners, faculty affairs practitioners around the world that will find such scholarship very useful. Mm -hmm. And this is part of my dream of broadening the view of scholarship.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast. You won't believe who we have today Dr. Paige S. Morahan. Yes, you know Dr. Morahan. You've heard her name mentioned. She is the founding director of ELAM, the Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine. This is a very prestigious program that many of us and our colleagues have attended and benefited from uh, the programming and the networking. She's a microbiologist by training and a professor emeritus at Drexel. So let's uh, hear from Dr. Moran. Hi, Paige.
0: How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, and I'm delighted to be here. I think podcasts are an innovative new scholarship area, and I've been very interested in broadening the view of scholarship for much of my career. Thank so, you, Paige. Glad so, to be here.
1: Thank you. Would you please tell um, the listening audience a little bit about your background and how
0: you got into faculty
1: affairs and development?
0: <laughs> okay. Um, kind of First, kind of who am I? Uh, you've already mentioned that I'm a founding director of ELAM, at, which is located at Drexel University. Uh, however, it is an international program. ELAM is now 25 years old, and the goal is to advance – the number of women in leadership positions in medical, dental, public health, pharmacy, and other health profession schools and and also included NIH now and a few other health-related organizations. Our related goal is it's not enough to just increase the number of women for gender equity. We need to sustain their leadership. So we're also trying to do that. Um, My So that's two roles, Uh uh, Professor Emeritus of Immunology Microbiology and uh, Founding Director of ELAM. And the third is Co-Founding Director of um, the FAMER Institute. Uh FAMER is Foundation for Advancement of International Medical Education and Research, and it is a foundation within ECFMG, Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. And it was formed... Um, we're now in our 20th year in the FAMER Institute, and it was formed um, to provide capacity building and research involving medical schools worldwide, and it's based on ELAM model. Wow. So that's what I've been involved in. Now, you asked, how did I get here? <laughs> it's been a convoluted journey. Um, I, I have had multiple careers, Kim and a love of learning, I'd say those are the key features. Uh, Multiple careers, I did multiple careers before. It's now we say that everyone is going to have at least five different careers in their lifetime. Mm. And so I already did that. I do wish I'd learned a little more about strategic career planning beforehand uh, earlier in my career, and I think that's why I'm still teaching strategic career planning because I see how useful it is. So my first career was as a research lab technician Mm -hmm. at Rockefeller Institute in New York City. That was after I graduated from Agnes Scott College with a um, major in chemistry Mm -hmm. and did independent study in microbiology. So in that job, I fast learned that I wanted to do more, so I went to Hunter College part time at night mm-hmm. and was able to do my research on my day job took a part of uh, my boss was very kind and you know gave me some mice and <laughs> so I could do my <laughs> uh, research um, uh, for my masters there at my laboratory uh-huh. um, and it was It was microbiology work and so I completed the masters and realized that didn't mean you could lead a laboratory and decide what was going to be done. So I decided, okay, I need to go on for a PhD. You can see where that level of learning comes in, too. Right. And so I started in the microbiology department at Cornell Sloan Kettering, their PhD program. However, my advisor, who was, I then had moved over to virology, um, just took the chair after a year Uh, took the chair of microbiology at what became the Medical College of Wisconsin and so I had the choice did I move with him or not and moving would mean I'd have to leave that program and go to Mount Sinai because that was where another virologist in the area was. Bottom line is that I moved to Milwaukee Mm -hmm. and got my PhD with Sid Grossberg. And um, I just had the pleasure of going back and speaking at, uh, at MCW um, this October. It was a lot of fun. So that was my first career, research technician while going to graduate school.
2: Okay.
0: Um, the second was the academic route, postdoc and faculty academic ladder. And um, so I think maybe it's because I got my Ph.D. in a medical school Uh, or two medical schools, that I gravitated towards that career. And this was at Virginia Commonwealth University. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so I did the usual teaching, research grants, uh, active in research societies. But in retrospect, an important career element that was not strategic, I just did it, was that I took some graduate courses in education, Uh, because I felt I needed to know a little more about the science of teaching since I was getting into it. Um, So after about a decade in in that academic life, I been wondering you know, what's next and chairs were the next logical thing so started looking at chairs and was recruited to be chair of microbiology and immunology at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. Uh So that's how I got to this area. So during that decade as chair, I continued to lead research grants. Those were the early days of biologic response modifiers, what's now known as immunotherapy. Um, I continued being active in national societies, um, both scientific and education. Um, for instance, I served on two committees for the National Board of Medical Examiners, and um, and one of my pleasures was being the first woman president of our Society of Microbiology and Immunology chairs. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of my career as chair was uh, continuing that unconscious interest in teaching and learning. Um, I held the first uh, hosted our school hosted the first national education conference of the chairs of microbiology and immunology, and and. Uh, and the directors of their courses and i was also part of a team that started a program in integrated learning at mcp and that program lasted for over 20 years as a separate track for the first 2 years it's just within about 2 years ago it's merged into a new into a new curriculum so you can see the kind of interest in education <laughs> followed me through um and then the other was um important element during those years was that after about seven years as chair I said I think I need to learn more about this you know I've been kind of doing it by the seat of my pants and and um so I took three leadership programs which I wish I had done earlier mm-hmm. in retrospect um I did the um double AMC um short program for chairs and associate deans. Mm -hmm. Um, I also did a week-long program um, from Harvard, their management development MDP program for department chairs. Um, And that was really useful because it got me out of the medical school to see the broader view. Mm -hmm. And I realized, for instance, that that time that other schools were further ahead than this was now, I took that program in probably 1989, something like that. Medical schools were further behind at that time than other universities and colleges in looking at diversity. And then the third program I did was, which really led to the cha- a major change in my career to the fourth career, was being selected as an American Council on Education Fellow, which, again, was that broader view of um, universities and colleges and community colleges and historic black colleges and religious colleges uh, across the U.S. So that really catapulted me into, as I said, my next career. One thing I learned during that AC Fellowship was that I really admire people who are in student affairs and there's no way that I wanted to take that on. However, faculty affairs (laughs) I became really intrigued with. Now, at that time again, this was in 1992, Mm -hmm. there were a minority of schools at that time, medical schools, had offices of faculty affairs. So I had the opportunity when I came back to start an office of faculty affairs and um, that's what I did and so that led to this fourth career as associate provost for faculty affairs Mm -hmm. Um, and this period coincided with a very tumultuous period in the life of Medical College of Pennsylvania we had just merged with the Allegheny Health System Um, And then this was followed by mergers with uh, Hahnemann University and a number of hospitals. And I had three charges for this new Office of Faculty Affairs. One was to review the promotion and um, tenure guidelines for all the schools, because now suddenly we were bigger than a medical school. We had um, what then was known as Allied Health and um, graduate studies, um, and um, we, second was to start an internal leadership program because we were melding the cultures of Pittsburgh, Allegheny Health System was located there in Philadelphia, very different, and then the different disciplines of medicine and nursing, and uh, cause that was another school, nursing and, and uh, health professions, and then the hospitals, that we had all the different hospitals that were being merged. Mm -hmm. So that was a charge for the internal leadership program, not a small charge. And then the third was to start the ELAM program. Mm -hmm. The um, previous president, um, who was now chancellor, Walter Cohen, had had that as a dream along with the um, director of uh, development, Patty Cormier, And I was offered the opportunity to start this program, um, ELAM. And so it was, we started it um, very much practice based. It was based on my experience as a chair, my experience in these leadership programs, what parts did I like in the curriculum and thought were, you know, useful, most Mm -hmm. useful. And um, only as ELAM evolved did I really become a leadership researcher, educator, and you know, first educating myself. Uh-huh. So the theory came after the practice, which uh, sometimes happens. And so did this for um, about a decade during which we went through bankruptcy. So we had that other tumultuous and being bought in bankruptcy court by Drexel University and And then um, being a separate entity financially, because Drexel didn't want us to be, you know, pull them down. And then after 10 years, becoming fully part of Drexel. um, So, you know, all kinds of changes. We felt like we were the ideal people to teach Elam, because we knew what change was about. I can't tell you how many different letterheads and business cards there have been along the way. And during this period, also um, after the bankruptcy, I went part time. So this is the fifth career, <laughs> becoming an independent um, leadership and career consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I continued. I continued my role as um, uh, director of Elam, and um, and and then went, as I said, went part time, and this led. To my being uh, invited by Nancy Gary, uh, who was on our advisory committee. And if people do not remember, uh, I would like to remind people of an icon in our medical, academic medical community, Nancy Gary, MD. Um, She was the first woman to be uh, dean of two different medical schools. And at the time she was on our advisory committee, she was president of ECFMG. And she liked what we had done with ELAM and thought we could do something like that at ECFMG, and that's how the FAMER Institute came about, was under her uh, presidency. Um, So that's (laughs) kind of how I got to where I am for the last 25 years of being a... uh, Moving from a basic science researcher to a leadership uh, educator and researcher and faculty affairs uh, researcher.
1: Well, I, I definitely so, um, I definitely feel <laughs> see that or hear your the thread that we hear from so many of us in in this field of that that lifelong learning and just the, the diverse backgrounds from which, which we all come, and that <laughs> something in us wanting to give back and and seeing other faculty members, you know, have, have struggles or or maybe not have such a smooth ride and us wanting to help smooth that, those rough seas for them. And so you, a lot of what you said, you know, makes me think of, you know, a lot of our stories, except that you've kind of done what a lot of us do, but you've done it like time's A hundred. (laughs) So I I can't help but reflect on the three programs you built. You know, the first one being when you were the department chair of microbiology immunology, as well as Famer and Elam. You mentioned that they're all three were over or over decade, two decades old, and the fact that Uh you built something that is still that's so sustainable over two decades. I mean, Mm -hmm. because a lot of us we can. You know, we come up with programs and workshops and seminars, or, or what have you. But, you know, tell us more about how. You know, what do you think? Got, what is it in you that is able to build programs that have that foundation that have sustained time and bankruptcies and changes in leadership and, and as you said, you know, you put theory after practice. How. You know, to what do you attribute the success of that that program-building skill that you
0: have? I think perseverance is a big one. I don't like to um, give up, uh, which is, and certainly through the bankruptcy (laughs) was an interesting period. Um, Sometimes I can persevere and stay with something too long, and that's something I'm learning. I think persistence Another one is being committed from the very beginning to doing evaluation
2: Mm.
0: on the programs. Um, I'm not quite sure where that came from. Uh, I think maybe from my Ph.D. background, uh, I feel like it's very important. If you're going to put effort into something, uh, find out whether whether it worked and how you could make it better. So we, when we started ELAM, I had, as I said, I'd been through that Harvard MDP program, and the director of that program at the time was Sharon McDade, a leadership educator um, and researcher, and she would written a book on uh, leadership. And so I um, recruited her, uh, not with money, <laughs> but for a collaborative effort. To evaluate our program hmm. uh, she was on our advisory committee so we developed um, a um, pre and post um, you know the basic pre and post uh, survey uh, beginning the first year of the program at the end at not at the beginning of the program but at the end we we had the uh, fellows in the first year take the post uh, post survey and then we Used it the next year, and then the next year, and then we wrote a paper about it, showing that that the fellows did, uh, believe, they had learned something. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, statistically proven, um, and that was based on the objectives of the different units. Right. Um, and then we then we were fortunate to um, garner a grant from a local foundation um, to um, add some more evaluation and continue it and you know get some, get some money for our evaluation group. And then we were fortunate and with Nancy Gary's help um, to get a large grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation wow.
2: um,
0: And through um, we, it wasn't enough to do what we wanted. And um, our my co-director, Roz Richmond, who is a fundraiser par excellence, um, was able to garner uh, four additional gifts. One from when Elam started, we were started with a grant um, from the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. And so we went back to them and got um, some funds for, with, uh, that we added to the Robert Johnson grant along with gifts from free schools. To, um, to have a robust enough uh, financial package to do um, a longitudinal uh, pre- and post-survey for several classes and to do some qualitative interviews, follow-up interviews. Um, and um, then we were also fortunate to... Um, We were one of the, I think it was 14 schools that uh, obtained grants in the NIH competition. The one time they've had a call for uh, grants dealing with advancement of women. Um, And and that we've, we have just published our last paper from that grant. (laughs) We just heard it was accepted at the Journal of Women's Health. It will be in the August issue. And, um uh and then, um we also uh, got a grant from the Sloan Foundation, and we're just finishing up our research with that wow. so um and there have been smaller grants along the way um, but you can see that i <laughs> I have a persistence, documentation proving you've had an effect learning from, you know, what needs to be changed. I think those have all been part of of success of the program.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I've been serving on the Group on Faculty Affairs Research and Scholarship Committee Mm -hmm. for several years now, and and that's certainly um, near and dear to all of our committee members' hearts. And we've recently begun offering workshops on how to conduct research and program evaluation in faculty affairs and how to publish in faculty Uh affairs and faculty development and actually Uh part of the um, the service for the facultyfactory.org website is we're trying to compile and archive uh, faculty affairs and faculty development scholarship so that we can have a one-stop shop where folks can go to facultyfactory.org and search on mentorship or women or leadership because we know that in our in our space, you know, the premier journal being Academic Medicine, well, it's so it's so difficult for us to get in, many of us to get into Academic mm-hmm. Medicine that we, you know, we we try to find different channels and routes to to publish our work, and then it makes it even more difficult sometimes to find uh, all right. these contributions. So we're trying to archive, you know, in in the community, the, the AAMC group on Faculty Affairs, trying to have one uh, one place where we can help each other out mm-hmm. by. Not only providing you know best practices or or evidence for what we do, but then help encourage and inspire and kind of use use what is out there for networking and more collaborations and and building mm-hmm. future um, opportunities and maybe projects from that. So I, I appreciate that and definitely um, share your your enthusiasm for data and evidence and okay. and evaluation.
0: Okay. Um, I don't know on um. Research of faculty affairs, I don't know whether uh, you know, Kim, that I spearheaded the first national survey of the status of faculty affairs and faculty development offices uh, using the double MC database
1: now was uh, that was yours the first one and that said then the Roberta Sanino at all did was just, it was yes. It Ken, was it, yes. Well, well, guess guess uh, what? This this feels like it's full circle, Paige. Because guess who's who's leading off the third iteration of your work? <laughs> Me. <laughs> oh, great, great.
2: So, is it well, this I'll full, full circle?
1: Yeah, that you you started it, and uh, I'm picking up the mantle, and we're we're getting into the next iteration of the next ten years mm-hmm. of faculty affairs and development right.
0: offices. So, see, yeah. here you
1: go.
2: Right, right
0: so so i that was one thing I brought in, and i was I was involved in faculty affairs before it was a formal group. right. I was um, chair of the meeting, I think a year or two years before it became a um, a, a formal group. Um, so I have a, a really a love for faculty affairs, as you can see. Um, I also um, was involved with um, early paper on using the logic model Mm -hmm. to document the effectiveness of faculty affairs offices Um, so that goes back to what you were saying and uh, that it is so important to do applied scholarship yes it may not reach academic medicine however there are many practitioners faculty affairs practitioners around the world that will find such scholarship very useful Mm -hmm. and this is part of my dream of broadening the view of scholarship is you know if you're going to do something make it be uh, a scholarly project and uh, and publish it so that it's useful for the for the community
1: that's right Uh, that's right because you know we spend so much time thinking about and, and brainstorming and and coming up with these programs and investing in tools and materials and the recruitment and the time and the space and the administrative effort. And if we were to just kind of t- pause for a moment and think, okay, and have that, that be a question all the time, and how are we going to measure this? And how are we going to measure but, this? And how are we going to know we're making a difference? And how might we make an impact? And who cares? And Who needs to be on our team Mm -hmm. to support this? That is Mm -hmm. just that moment there of doing something, I think, really lends credibility. And certainly, Mm -hmm. you're building three programs that now are still in existence after two decades, Mm -hmm. uh, demonstrates that something built on solid ground has more staying power versus, you know, just whipping something together and maybe not looking at it carefully and changing things and... Mm -hmm. Drastically every year, such that you can't really measure um, right. any impact. It, it requires some amount of thought and and some mm-hmm. amount of familiarity with a program evaluation constructs, or as you mentioned, logic models. Mm-hmm. and And if we don't mm-hmm. have us that expertise, there are many of us in the community who do. And so it, it you know, we're such a tight group, right. in the AAMC group on faculty affairs. It wouldn't take much uh, something simple as as an inquiry on the gene the GFA listserv saying, starting a new program, you know, you know, calling all program evaluators who wants mm-hmm. to be involved in this. And I'm sure they're, you know, we're a very generous right. group. Right.
0: You're correct, Kim. It is a different set of research skills. Right. Um, you know, I came out of the world where I did not know there was another research design other than randomized experimental. You know, I work with mice or cell culture, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, nice control or more control situations. And so I had to move from the laboratory control randomized experimental research to the messy arena of research with human subjects and mixed methods. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have to say, having been in both worlds, I, sh- I shudder at... My early days as a microbiology chair, when I said, "You know, let's just do a survey. I mean, we can right. <laughs> do a survey, whip it out, and whip it out in half a day, and send it to people." Yeah. And I now realize that survey design is it's just science. as precise as right. doing a molecular biology protocol.
2: You're right. You're right.
0: Um, however, unfortunately, many of the experimental researchers do not realize that. They yes. don't realize they have a bias against qualitative research. Yes. So, at any, any rate, that's that's. Um, there was another. Um, it was something else you mentioned, but it's gone out of mind for the moment. Uh,
1: yeah. Maybe we'll um, come back. I, I'm I'm right. curious about your um, you know the five careers as you described them and kind of walked us through your path of going from research technician to traditional academia to a chair to you know the leadership programs that really changed your kind of your direction and then ultimately Mm -hmm. as an associate provost at any i mean because of course now armchair quarterbacking this you you have you did mention a couple times you wish you had fill in the blank taken leadership courses Mm -hmm. early on you wish you had known Mm -hmm. a little bit more about strategic Mm -hmm. career planning and yet um yeah, obviously this worked out really well for you. I mean, you, mm-hmm. there are no obvious snafus or big gaffes, but recalling this path and th- this, this journey, was there any point in time where you did have doubts and you felt like, um, you, you were really struggling with the decision to, you know, stay in academia versus going into leadership roles because it sounded like you're like, well, it was seven years and I thought, well, what's it, what else? Or then it was 10 years and I thought, what else? Mm-hmm. Is this? Do mm-hmm. you feel like that's a a natural organic rhythm to life that about seven, 10 years, um, one starts thinking, what's next? Or is it unique to Paige morahan Or is it unique to scientists and academicians that we are <laughs> have that bug for learning
0: more and doing more? I- I think that it's a natural rhythm. Um, You know, we have the movie, The Seven-Year Itch. (laughs) Right. Uh, And I think it's based on on some nature. I think it's marvelous when someone has such a passion for a research area that they stay with it and are excited um, for 30, 40 years. And and I do have colleagues that are that way. Um, However think what happened for me was i began to see the broader picture and um part of this was being part of all this uh, mergers and acquisitions and bankruptcy Mm -hmm. and i saw how context and the environment affect what you can do Mm -hmm. and um so i i found myself reading here's here's one kind of tip that i give um in, in career counseling is watch what you pick up to read uh, professionally that you pick up to read. And I didn't realize it at the time, but something was changing when I would have to force myself to read the Journal of Immunology uh, in order to, you know, get a grant written. However, I would pick up the, um, the New England Journal every week or the uh, began picking up the Harvard Business Review and the Chronicle of Higher Education, so that I was beginning to to see the world more broadly. Hmm. And um, I think that's a general fact as one gets matures and goes through phases of life.
1: So, so may um, I interrupt? So you're saying that, mm-hmm. um, this is interesting, you said that watch what you pick up to read. So I, mm-hmm. I my head went two ways. At first I thought you were gonna say, Watch what you pick up to read. Like, what do, what is my hand? So we all have desks with stuff everywhere and Mm -hmm. and stacks and journals that we think we're going to get to and read. So when I have a minute and I'm trying to cram some salad down my throat and I'll watch where my hand goes, what do Mm -hmm. I gravitate to Mm -hmm. because I want to versus I have Mm -hmm. to, but then Mm you said um, something that made me think, oh, wait a minute, does she mean watch what I read and how I experience that reading. So there are, like you said, some things in my I'm in the gerontology field where I look through my journals of gerontology, the gerontologist the gerontologists, and I and I read through things. And yet inevitably, like you, when I pick up academic medicine, the Journal of Faculty Development and Harvard Business Review. I you know kind of tear through it and I'm I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I mm-hmm. my, my eyes mm-hmm. are get, I can feel my eyes get big and I just want to read it really fast and I'm just mm-hmm. thirsty for that. So is I think you, maybe you mean both of those that I, um, that you I mean, you're, I mean you're telling both. yourself yeah. something when mm-hmm. you like okay Kim stop look at you just got all excited when you started <laughs> right. reading those and you're kind right. of like yawn with something else.
0: <laughs> the magazine that does that for me now is Change magazine you may never have heard of, but oh. I encourage, encourage faculty affairs people to put it in their list. It's a magazine about higher ed, broad magazine, and it quite often has uh, faculty development, faculty affairs type articles in it. I've never heard of it. Change.
1: <laughs> who, do you know what regularity it comes out of? Who publishes it?
0: Uh, like six times a year. Um, let's see, wait a minute. Let it's me not change management, right? No, 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 no. It's it's called change. change. <laughs> it, yeah, it was it's a the legacy of um, a group on faculty uh, uh, that was in existence when I first became associate provost, and that organization went out of business. But this magazine still persists. Huh. I'm trying to see whether I've got one in my reading doesn't look like I do, which shows I'm, I'm keeping up-to-date with this. <laughs> I'll
1: definitely have to uh, look it up. We'll all have to look up change, and maybe you'll come across it
0: as we're chatting here. Yeah, I have one other place I'm looking, but I'm pretty sure I've got, got one in. Yes. Oh, great. Change, the Magazine of Higher Learning. And, for instance, um, th- this was the November-December issue in 2019, and the one that really struck me um, was uh, hashtag pedagogies mm-hmm. improving literacy and course relevance through social media meta- metaphors and this uh, history professor used um, um instagram ah. and it's it's really remarkable what he was able to do and uh and then there's another the art of designing a curriculum optimized for learning transfer. Um, looking below the surface to close achievement gaps and improve career readiness skills. Wow! Yeah. And and then another one: looking at evaluation, common data, unconscious use, uncommon use. Dining hall meal swipes predict retention and graduation. Oh,
2: jeez.
0: <laughs> so. You know, if there's there's always something fascinating in it. And, like, you know, that made me think about, are right. there markers like that exactly. <laughs> to use for faculty? You know? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: I, I think so, it's... So I I've
0: encourage you.
1: Change, the magazine of higher learning. I I wish we had the luxury of... Resources at our, at our institutions to host us to do sabbaticals in other industries because I'm the same way with reading anything, you know, HBR, Harvard Business Review and anything mm-hmm. in business, entrepreneur, I love these because I always feel like they're, you know, leap years ahead of our thinking mm-hmm. and inevitably every yeah. article I read, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we could, if you just pop Apply in faculty development yeah. or mm-hmm. we could really, you know, mm-hmm. crosswalk that. Exactly. And so it's it's so exciting to just right. step out of our comfort zones and go to see how, how is everybody else doing this kind of stuff.
0: To finish up with a change since I've got it in front of me now, it's the the editorial home of change is CHIA, the Council for Higher Education Accreditation.
1: Council for Higher Education
0: Accredits, C H E A. So
1: it's for all um, traditional higher education.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. gotcha. Mm-hmm. And it's published by Routledge Taylor and Francis Group. There you go, so. folks. Have a new. Have that's a new, the one uh, source
1: for us. To look that's at. the one I <laughs> Now we we talked to you know Nancy again Nancy Spector back in I think it was oh gosh I think I talked to her back in the spring and. Um, executive director of, of elam and she she said of you you know page always says you need to do leadership training at every stage of your career and mm-hmm. i can't help but notice that that's just been your mantra throughout every stage of your career because
0: mm-hmm.
1: everything you talked about you talked about how you sought out more training mm-hmm. when you're a postdoc mm-hmm. you purposely sought out i want to learn more about education and mm-hmm. when you were the chair, you I want to learn more about leadership. So, and then the ACE fellowship, so on and on and on. And, and what, what advice would you give to um, folks just now starting off in faculty affairs development or even faculty members who might be listening to this and mm-hmm. think, well, that's nice that, that you have that curiosity, but in academic medicine has changed and we, we don't have time for this and these things take mm-hmm. time and and resources and money and I'm too busy taking care of patients and charting an epic and writing grants and writing papers. And this is just pie in the sky. It's undoable. What, what are your thoughts on that kind of a retort?
0: Um, I think if you don't get out of your, your rut, you're going to stay there. Mm -hmm. And you may be at risk when a new owner comes or whatever, because you don't know the broader picture. So I think there's a risk in doing that. That you have to take some time to uh, learn the skills uh, that are, you know, not microbiology, how to grow cell culture, mm-hmm. um, to uh, know the know how to network. I did not know how to network effectively. Uh, I now teach, you know, introverts how how they can network and and make it you know make it doable. So there definitely are skills, and, you know, these soft skills are important. We are unfortunately acculturated, Kim, that they're not important. Uh, and that's one of the, um, I think, one of the deficits of our culture in academic medicine. So I would say these days it is so easy to at least get the broad knowledge. Uh, you've got podcasts. You've got YouTube um, you know, all over, As far and nothing can replace face-to-face developing trust-based relationships with people, mm. and that, that requires face-to-face. Now, you can maintain it. Once you develop it, you can maintain it long distance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I am part of a group that did some training called organizational training uh, in the early 90s. There were, um, there are now six of us in the group from Canada and the U.S., we meet weekly by phone. Weekly? We we didn't, initially, when it was not as easy to do phone calls the way it is now, we did, uh, I would set up, because I was in a medical school and had, you know, could set up a conference call, and we met like every six weeks. Um, And we have only seen each other face-to-face two times since '93. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But I can, I can tell you it is a very close community. Yeah. So spend the time to develop trust, and then, then you can keep it, and you can get booster shots by seeing people.
2: <laughs>
0: um, uh, however, these days, you know, with um, FaceTime and uh, Zoom and Skype, uh, one can have almost the same type of thing. Not quite, but almost. Okay. So, so I think it's imperative. Let me give you another example. in um, The early days of being associate provost and leader of ELAM, um, I would get annoyed. Remember, we were in this tumultuous environment. We would have, you know, deans come and go and provosts come and go and presidents come and go. Mm. And so each one that came, I would have to spend time mm-hmm. educating them. Yes. Why is it important to support ELAM? And I would be be annoyed. I just want to do my job. And I finally had a, a you know a mindset shift that that was part of my job. That a good ten to twenty percent part of my job was educating the new regime. Mm.
2: Wow.
0: And so I just so I had to accept that that's part of the job. Just like you know writing a a um, human subjects protocol. You may not want to do it, and you have to do it. And so that really helped me. And I think that mindset um, shift needs to happen in early careers, that it is important to uh, spend some time educating yourself in the leadership and managerial skills that you need to get your job done and to develop the network. And to spend a little time reflecting, is this what I want to do for the next twenty years? How do I want to contribute to the world?
1: Yeah well, that that's I think what yeah. you're talking about and is this strategic career planning that you mm-hmm. are now expert at and spend right. some time in your consulting practice. and And what you just said is resonates with me perfectly because I, too, as an associate dean at Hopkins, we have senior associate deans and the vice dean, and although our vice dean, Dr. Janice Clements, has been around um, for, oh gosh, I think over 30 years uh, in in Mm -hmm. her vice dean role, not that long, obviously. But the senior associate deans who've been at Hopkins, you know, 25, also 30 years, and rotate through those leadership positions, I too was getting all harumphy that, oh, here we go. Now there's going to be another Mm -hmm. senior associate dean for faculty Mm -hmm. development, and I have to inform him or her this is how the office of faculty development runs this is what we do and part of me was getting a little resentful of like like you said i felt like i'm too busy shouldn't they just (laughs) kind of say you know and kim you know runs a day-to-day of the office of faculty development she's good you know you know she'll let you know what's going on when you need to know something and just basically like get out of the way and it's just such an obnoxious attitude that I had. But when you just said that, it made yeah. me realize, yeah, Kim, you need to get off your high horse and recognize that part of the job is just good old communication, good old meet and greet, mm-hmm. good old getting people to to know you, to understand you mm-hmm. in your office, to to get mm-hmm. a feel for who they are and what matters to them, and understand right. yeah. them, yeah. and right. and yeah, it, it's yep. a very humbling message. But you're right because it's we're all so busy that the idea of every every year we get a new fac a new head of faculty senate. Then we the faculty senate works really closely with our office of faculty development. We're hand in glove, and every year there are elections, and there's a new. Pr- mm-hmm. president or chair of faculty senate right. and every year yeah. I get the inevitable I'd like to get together with you and learn about <laughs> our 3,000 faculty and what they want and what your office does and I go
0: ah <laughs> but no, exact- view, it, right? view it as a view it as a term I coined about the third year in ELAM graceful self-promotion
1: the art of graceful self-promotion <laughs> I remember LuAnn <laughs> Thorndike came and gave us that I love it Ah, yeah And it
0: is very important. You can't expect people to know what you're doing. Right. Not particularly not in this fast-moving world of ours. Um, Back to um, help for faculty, this may not be for the very junior faculty, um, but once you get into a role like chair or associate dean as you are, another place to get that broader perspective is through an executive coach. Yes. And, and we, we really encourage an ELAM for any woman going to a leadership position to negotiate an executive coach as part of the package.
2: Yeah.
0: Because that can give you, give you that external um, perspective mm-hmm. that you need. And I, I am pleased, one of the things I'm pleased about is that we help start executive coaching as a, as a useful modality in academic health centers. Uh, it was maybe within five years of forming ELAM, a number of the faculty, we got together and we uh, wrote a letter, drafted uh, a letter and put together bios of all of us and sent it to all the deans mm. um, called the ELAM Alliance, uh, which is now no longer in effect, but the concept is still there. And so I'm happy to know now that many medical schools, not, not not a majority yet, but many, um, Routinely offer leaders an executive coach as part of the package. That's right. That's and um, right. that cr-
1: it's a, that perspective of someone who is just outside of your culture, but has enough of a of an experience mm-hmm. with the importance of mm-hmm. culture and emotional mm-hmm. intelligence, and some just mm-hmm. some guideposts and a perspective to slow us down, calm us down, and. Obviously, good advice too. It, it's invaluable. I remember mm-hmm. when I was interviewing for my Hopkins job here almost seven years ago, I um, I met up with Laura Schweitzer. And mm-hmm. Laura was, um, I call her my coach, and I met her through the double mm-hmm. AMC mid career women's mm-hmm. program. And that her advice was just invaluable. And I, I remember feeling like mm-hmm. a little puppy dog whose head goes, what? When I I called to tell her I got the job, she's like, that's wonderful, Kim. Congratulations. Now, what's your exit strategy? And I went, (laughs) what? Exit strategy? I'm I'm not even there yet. You're talking about an exit strategy. And she laughed. She said, nope, you have to have an exit strategy. And it was just interesting that she planted that seed. But Mm -hmm. that I thought, oh, my gosh, I never in a million years would have thought as soon as you're accepting a job, it's just mm-hmm. this big picture, just this kind of pullback. Mm-hmm. You know, what mm-hmm. what is next step and where where if things go south quickly? Or mm-hmm. you know, it, oh, yeah. it kind it was yeah. confer it was a reassuring also in a way to not that I was nervous, but thinking, Okay, this is good to know that this is a thing, to yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good idea, to have a safety net.
2: <laughs>
0: mhm. Yeah. So and and Laura Schweitzer is superb. Oh yeah, uh, person for you to have worked with. Think <laughs> that. Um, so, so, any anyway, rate, that's that's one legacy that I'm I'm pleased with. That executive coaching is now, you know, part part of the normal, academic health center, a panoply of leadership approaches.
1: Fantastic.
0: Um, I think one one other thing that I wanted to that I'm particularly pleased about with ELAM, we haven't gone as far as we could, or Famer is fostering, including diversity and inclusion, cultural sensitivity, and understanding implicit bias. Uh Um, So, as far as I know, I believe we're still the only program, national program, uh, that has a full day of uh, programming on diversity and inclusion. Includes um, includes some role playing where people have to get into roles, and so it's it can be uh, challenging. And in Famer, we um, were able to do it initially because, um, frankly, the you know the M.D.s and the organization didn't think it was necessary. Uh, but I realized that we were Eurocentric. I mean, you are American centric. And so we, when we were able to, we brought in the concept of, um, of, uh, you know, cultural sensitivity and we're now much more culturally sensitive than we were when we first began. Sure. You know, simple things like having, um, two separate tables, one for food, one for the vegetarians so that the, you know, ladles in the meat don't get into the, <laughs> the uh-huh. ladles for the vegetarians, um... You know, having a prayer room for the, um, uh, for the Muslims um, and just some simple things yeah. like that as well as um, uh, things that take more, more uh, emotional effort. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: but as we move, this is an area that if I'm moving into my <laughs> sixth career, if you will, this is an area that I am really focusing on is um, diversity and inclusion, gender equity, treating everyone with respect. Uh, as we move into a world that's more global and diverse, um, we must have these skills and begin to look at our implicit assumptions mm-hmm. that we all have. For instance, that that assumption that uh, experimental randomized research is the gold standard, and if you can't do that, it's really not worth doing. Uh, That's, I can't tell you how often I have come across that in this new world. When we do as rigorous a study, like having stratified groups, so we have groups matched to their school, uh, groups that, uh, a cohort that went to leadership programs, Mm -hmm. a cohort of women who did not, and the cohort of men at the same school, appointed assistant professor at the same year or associate professor and then following from the AAC database when did they get promoted and people say you need to do a randomized study <laughs> you know to see if these see if these programs are useful yeah uh, you know and and i've, I've had that mm. from a reviewer
1: yeah
0: Shows totally yeah. lack of understanding. That's
1: right. You cannot, uh-huh. we, we learn in the applied social science and you, you can in, in nonprofit. I worked for a while at Penn State in the, running an applied research center. It was the same thing. There, there's an ethical component to randomizing some kids to this mm-hmm. beneficial or perceived to be beneficial treatment and then not, uh, you just, it's not that easy. They're not, you know, rats.
0: Right. 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 And it's, it's not appropriate. Right. right but people so that's a bias, and another bias you know that the that's the implicit assumption that the um, your American way of doing things is the best
2: is the, yeah, the and only i've one. had right.
0: i've I've really been honored by being part of the FAMER program and seeing that what many of these countries are doing is as good or better, like in Brazil, they get students into the community earlier than we do. Mm. And have them do substantive things for six years. Oh my goodness! You know, following a family. So wow. think what that could do to American healthcare if you oh had something gosh. like that. Wow! Um, and um, so, um, and then of course, uh, teaching learning methods. We still have the implicit assumption, those of us that grew up in the day of lectures, that you know, lectures are really the best. And and it's a whole other world to learn uh, interactive teaching methods that you know, and to show they're effective, and to be willing to willing to to take those risks and try. And that's why I'm delighted to be on a podcast as an example of something like that. I think what <laughs> the final thing I wanted to say, Kim, is something you probably don't know is that I'm I've combined my artistic photographic interest with my career wherever i can and uh, that's ultimately part of my sixth career <laughs> i have a photo show local photo show that's going to open on march 20th so oh my i started God. the way i've incorporated this and roberta sanino would and i have thought about writing a column on this is i created a series of electronic cards which are my images with writing on them um to send for congratulations or happy birthday because you cannot send something snail mail to Uganda and expect it to get there Uh. in any decent time. So, you know, I had to do that. And then I've, um, created uh, an annual, annual, um, calendar pages, pages around the world that I create that, um, and the, and the profits go to help support Famer. Oh,
1: so. my gosh. Pages, pages so. around pages the world. Around I love it. Jeez, does your creativity have no bounds?
0: This, this, well, folks, if you have a name like this, you make, make use of it. Well,
1: yeah, I, I love it. And, you know, folks, this is a good example for what happens when you give a scientist a mouse. Look at what she did. Her mentor gave her a mouse and set her on her way. And now, all these years later, look at what she's done. So... I love your story, I learned a lot from you, and I love the idea of you and um, your artistic bend and your creativity. And I just think this is wonderful and I really appreciate you sharing your time and um, encouraging and inspiring us in the faculty affairs and faculty development community. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. Paige Morihan, the founding director of ELAM. Executive leadership in academic medicine. You can find out more about her on the facultyfactory.org website, and her email address is pm36 at drexel.edu. And she is a consultant and um, can give you lots of advice on all the things we've talked about today. So, Paige, any parting thoughts or words or anything to the, to
0: our family out there? No, I, no, I think that the. Three final messages are create applied scholarship out of your faculty affairs and faculty development work and evaluate your program and become aware of your implicit assumptions. Wow. As you do your work. Perfect,
1: perfect. There you have it, one of the pros. (laughs)